And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. We're taking an alcohol, liquor, spirit brand to market. Super competitive, ultra competitive. We have to build a brand that stands out. We don't know about anything, but we do know that we have to build a brand. What is that thing that allowed you to be successful? You know, I think the thing that's lost that I see is some really young entrepreneurs is just straight up grit. Courtney Rame here with M13. Hard to believe, but over 15 years now working. After being a reformed investment banker, my brother and I started our Vive Spirits and also became advisors, board members, angel investors, and the evolution of that led to the creation of M13. I don't think being an entrepreneur is for everyone. I think a lot of it is learned. You know, you can't forget that there's a big element of luck and skill, and you make your own luck. There was a, a real well-known venture capitalist who did this big study after his career, very successful. He tried to look back and go, oh, if I had done this, if I had done that, whatever. And the only thing that he felt was statistically significant, which would have changed his results, is just you have Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, Arianna Huffington, PNG Ventures. So especially first time to be able to attract people like this. But if somebody raises money from people of this caliber, what would be the thing that allows you to bring these people in? I, you know, I think. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They've been with me for over two years now. They're one of my favorite tools, and they are starting to roll out AI tools that will dramatically cut your working hours in half. Research shows employees that use AI are cutting time spent on manual tasks like pulling reports or summarizing data in half from 5 to 2.5 hours a day. That adds up to almost four weeks a year. HubSpot's AI-powered tools can help you work smarter, not harder by streamlining how you do business from research and strategy to content creation and optimization. ChatSpot and Content Assistant are baked right into the HubSpot CRM so you can whip up reports, get copy inspiration, pull data summaries, and a ton more just with a simple chat command. So you wanna tap into HubSpot, 
you want to get more free time back, stop staring at your screen, start enjoying your summer PTO, learn more and get started today at HubSpot.com. I think we all have we we all obviously have lots of inflection points. I think I think for me, I spent a lot of my life um, chasing things like achievement and success, and I, I have amazing parents, amazing grandparents, amazing role models. Um, but a lot of things were kind of put to me in a way of, hey, this is a this is the path you should pursue. You should go to these schools. You should work at these places. And um, so I think I feel like. For a long time, I kind of played other people's games, um, literally certain sports. And my parents, who, again, are super loving and super trusting, would be like, well, if you get all A's, you can have a car. I'm like, okay, sounds fair. Hey, if you're getting all A's and you um, are good at good at sports, like that must mean you're trustworthy. Like You don't really have to have too strict a curfew. I was like, that sounds great, too. So check those two things off. Um, and so it was a little bit of, you know, it's a different time now and not in a bad way if my mom listens to this, but it's, you know, it was a little sticks and carrots is a little bit of like, okay, go to Columbia, go to Harvard for business school, do that stuff. And then go work at um, Goldman Sachs mainly because that was what you did. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I think for me, that inflection point was probably the decision to leave Goldman Sachs, which is, um, you know, not one I took lightly because your, your resume is probably never more powerful at that moment. This is also 15 years ago. Let me put it in the historical context because I do think uh, even 15 years ago, Goldman had a different place in the world than it, than it does now. But I think the decision to go, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do something on my own. I don't actually know what. I don't even know if I have any ideas um, was probably that point for me, especially because my brother, who went to all the same schools and also worked at Goldman two years younger, so I felt kind of responsible, decided he was going to come with me. Um, and this is a true story. Like It won't sound like this to people, but in 2007, when I told someone that I worked at Goldman that I was going to um, be an entrepreneur instead of going to work for a hedge fund because that was kind of all the rage or private equity, he said to me straight face, so what do you mean? Like you're going to like be a snowboard instructor or something? I was like, no, I think I'm going to like actually really start something. But he dead set thought I was just burnt out and going to be a snowboard instructor. Um, which did sound pretty good too, but it does sound good. But I mean, that I mean, somebody who's a high performing individual, that's not gonna usually usually want to build and you want to create and and you weren't burnt out. I mean, it's not easy work. You did some you worked on some major IPOs at Goldman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that was very impressive work. But speak through some of those pivotal moments at Goldman, some of the companies you worked with, maybe what that taught you about entrepreneurship, what what allowed you to not allowed you to but what that work did in terms of lighting a fire inside of you because all those things that you worked on at Goldman obviously funny enough led you to leave Goldman so I want to I want to understand that a bit more yeah so um you're 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 right in that I you know Goldman I think like a lot of things we do that are hard um you know there's a difference between it being worthwhile and it being hard Goldman Sachs was very hard um very hard for me especially because I think you know, when you have the quality of horsepower there, um, intellectually and otherwise, um, especially around a very narrow scope of work, I was um, always felt like I was trying to catch my breath compared to some people that worked there. But it was uh, very hard. But I do think I have a little bit of revisionist history of like how good the experience was, or maybe not how good it was. It's a really good experience. How much I enjoyed the experience. Um, I think I've kind of romanticized it now. But I'll say this: incredible training, met incredible people. 
um, was part of was lucky uh, to to work with uh, a team that was part of the biggest consumer products merger in history, Procter and Gamble Gillette. But the things that to me were um, really uh, formative from working at Goldman uh, in terms of like role models and, and deals was um, I worked with uh, Under Armour as they were getting ready to go public. And when you see someone like Kevin Plank, the founder of Under Armour, who just really has a good idea, has that moxie and just ready to kind of run through walls, but with, you know, with a great, with a great proposition, um, it just made a really lasting impact on me. And then I also actually spent some time um, doing work for Vitamin Water, which is maybe not a product I exactly endorse, but certainly a great um, brand and positioning and, and the way they market it. And so uh, you see some folks like that do it and you say, I don't know if I can, but let's give it a whirl. And at 27, you don't think much else past that. <laughs> so was the, I mean, like, was the first iteration of you as an entrepreneur, was that Vive? Was that that first iteration or yeah. was there things that you failed at? No, that was it. You didn't fail at five things yep, that no that one's ever it. heard of. You know, like, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I tell all these people and it's true. Like we, we saw, like my brother was kind of more on the tech side at Goldman and, and he did some industrial stuff like KKR's IPO, but he, he was always a tech. I was kind of like things you can, you know, market and consumer mm -hmm. psyche and all that. And so we saw the world meeting in the middle and kind of converging. And now, you know, when we live in LA, that really happens with tech and media and brands and all that. Um, but then we did exactly which something that makes exactly no sense and started an alcohol brand, which is the, no matter how good it is, the lowest tech, most non-pivotable, non-scalable, um, yep. no direct-to-consumer thing you could do. So we did that. So, so, so why? why? Why would you do this to yourself? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, like any good entrepreneur having, if I knew then what I knew now, I never would have. But um, I, I think we, well, I guess there was a little bit of a few factors. There is, um, there is like reading like a 10K or a 10Q financial report when statements come out about at Goldman, you're reading about these spirits companies and you're like, wow, it's great margin, it's this, it's that, but they don't really do innovation. So me sitting there in my, in my little tie at Goldman, I was like, well, I can do something more interesting. Meanwhile, I was, uh, let's just say, a very, a, uh, a very fervent customer of lots of New York City establishments at the time when I wasn't working usually clubs because I'd get out at midnight yeah. or one and go for a, a drink. And it was very much like, um, it wasn't as much the dark spirits and, and tequila hadn't really taken off. I actually had an interesting meeting when I was at Goldman with John Paul DeJoria and we went to drink tequila. And I remember the, the managing director was kind of like, yeah, I've heard of tequila. You know, I mean, this <laughs> is again, 20 years ago, but not 50 years yeah. ago. Where he's like, yeah, I've heard of tequila, but I don't, I don't think this will really take off. So anyways, it was a Red Bull vodka sort of world. It was a Grey Goose sort of world. And as a consumer, I went, hmm, I'm bored of my drinking experience. There must be other people like me. Let's try and innovate something both in the bottle and as a company. Uh, and, and I think we kind of felt like, you know, Goldman gave you incredible training on a very narrow scope of business. And we thought we would be good at um, kind of the other sides of business, the brand building, the connectivity, the the, all that sort of stuff. And so we thought that is probably the one thing we were right about. We had no clue how to go to market with it, but we were really right that um, you learn a lot about marketing and brand building and kind of the fickleness, yet hopefully predictably fickleness of consumer behavior. So then, so what is that? So that lesson, the lesson of we're taking a, a, an alcohol, liquor, spirit brand to market, super competitive, ultra competitive. We have to build a brand that stands out. We don't know about regulatory. We don't know about distribution. We don't know about retail. We don't know about anything, but we do know that we have to build a brand. What is that thing that allowed you to be successful? 
I do, you know, I think the thing that, that I look, that I think look for and that I think is lost that I see is some, some really young entrepreneurs is just straight up grit. And, you know, I always make the joke like, you know, cause spirits, uh, alcohol tends to be something where like your family or your mm. dad was in it or whatever. And, oh, my dad was an alcohol salesman or these, these generate these brands that are passed down generationally. So it's like, we had none of that. I didn't, I didn't even know a single person in spirits. It was like. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn Jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers, they filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935 and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text Success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Googling things and asking around. Um, But, you know, in the book we wrote, the first chapter talks about getting in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And I think we were really good about doing some market research and market sizing and seeing who we know, who knew someone, and just kind of chasing up every lead. And, um, you know, again, you're in your 20s. It's a fun thing to be doing for sure. And so... You kind of have motivation to kind of have the grit because there's some other fun things that come with it. So I, I think it was just straight up, you know, a lot of a lot of hustle. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'm assuming like we didn't even bring it up yet, but the book that you just wrote, Shortcut Your Startup, that's learnings from, I'm assuming, 
all the way back to Goldman Sachs, all the way through to building Vive, all the way through to M13. Like these are learnings along every single function of an entrepreneur, raising money, raising capital, selling a product, product market fit. So, I mean, it's interesting because you've done all of it. You've been the advisory, you've been the operator, you've been the, the capital allocator. So the, the, the lens that you see entrepreneurship through is, is super vast, which is awesome, yeah. right? It really is awesome. And I think yeah. that when you build out like your first company, I'm also curious about one thing in your first company, because I think that if I read this correctly, this was one of the first companies to ever, uh, if I'm not mistaken, be a carbon neutral spirits company and you donated 1% of all the sales yeah. to environmental causes. So this, this now is not so abnormal. This is very common. But back then, this was sort of new, innovative. When you look at what you did there, I'm assuming you still have the lens of looking for companies that are doing things differently, doing things in a novel way, finding new ways to resonate with the audience in the market. Um, how do you source out that thing that could move the market, make the brand more trustworthy with who they're trying to sell to, like ultimately create that evangelism? Because that's what brand is can you can you ignite that evangelism in your customers right yeah yeah i think um you know it's that is uh it's funny because our uh for my my current uh holding company called m13 which is as you kind of point out i like to feel entrepreneurial i like to also invest and i like to just build yeah. things and so it kind of gives us a container where our our you know the main thing we do is um consumer tech focused venture capital funds but we've also launched a bunch of our brands which i'm happy to talk about and I think for me and my brother especially it's a lot of fun to some days be more entrepreneurial someday have your investor hat on and certainly it's the virtuous cycle of um, being an investor has made me a better entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur has made mm -hmm. me uh, a better investor and to stay entrepreneurial iron sharpens iron like when I'm talking to someone about a company we invested in a lot of times I can say it from a place of like I've tried this recently or I failed at this recently, not just, oh, I hear everyone talking about this, but I'm pretty, you know, pretty hands off and pretty removed. And I think that's kind of the mindset we have for our whole firm, which is which is pretty unique and really important. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of our so our North Star, what we're looking to, to be um, the best at with what we're doing is uh, future of consumer behavior. And so uh, there's not like one way to uh, <laughs> describe it, but I would say you know, in the world we live in, the information is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And so to the extent I can have some information asymmetry on anything, mm -hmm. you know, I see some trends myself, I talk to other people, I'm lucky to know XYZ person, you know, like, I mean, it used to be something where like, you'd go to the athletes to get the latest supplements or take whatever it is, we we try and do that in a myriad of ways. But I do think, um, just a little bit of that, I'll put it in hockey terms for you, you know, where the puck yeah. is going is uh, is really important, yeah. really hard to do, but really important. Yeah, I love that. Because I think that, you know, whenever you see somebody that has multiple successes, and, and you're not just an investor now, now you spin up your own companies. Like, I, I love to ask about the playbook. And I want to understand like what the playbook is for a successful startup, because now it's not just grit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it will be a lot of grit, but hopefully it's not as much grit and a little bit more tactical execution after after doing it a few times but then there's also nuances so like you know in any industry it's not going to be the exact same playbook there's similarities there's a checklist but there's a lot of things that are like niche and industry specific so it's like 
the the mindset of of sourcing for the knowledge that's going to give you that advantage or give you insight into the consumer build those feedback loops i think that's like a super super valuable lesson for entrepreneurs because there isn't just one playbook that works for everyone but and yeah. I and I do want yeah. to clarify because you said something really important. You you specifically asked about first company, and to your yeah. point, I do think it was grit, you know. And I do think I want to clarify something I said earlier because I do think like some of the hustle culture stuff is a mm. little is is real good and bad. And I don't I don't believe in kind of hustling for the sake of hustle or busyness with a Y, if you will. I believe in kind of velocity, which is like speed but with direction. Um, and you asked specifically about the first company, which. I don't think we had any velocity because we didn't really know where we were going or what we were doing. So that was kind of more like trying to will it and grit and a little more hustle. Yeah. Now I think to your point, almost everything we do has some ability, some some element of like repeatability or pattern recognition along with some newness because if we're starting or investing in something in the metaverse or Web3 yeah. or AI, not many people have done much with it, right? So we're, we're building the plane as we fly. Yeah, I, so we'll, we'll go into that in a second. I, I want to, I'm not going to spend too much time on, 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 on the first startup, but I do want to just walk through that first startup was a success. You, I mean, you, you eventually exited it. Um, I want to just speak about that journey. So as a first time entrepreneur, building a company, first company to, to exit is not common for most people. So the process of building that up, when did you understand how you'd like to carry that company? You know, what was the milestone or the revenue number where you're like, hey, this works, we have product market fit, let's continue to grow. We don't need the playbook for the, the entire cycle of growth, but what's that product market fit point when idea is validated? And then also after that, walk me through the exit, the acquisition, and then the pivot yeah. into M13. Sure, I mean, I think the, um you know, one thing that really attracted us to spirits on paper was that because innovation was so hard, I, I won't go into all the reasons it's really hard, but it's it's really hard for new incumbents. It's really hard to get distribution. There's no pivoting to some other product. <laughs> You've got something sitting in a bottle, you know, I mean, and um, you're really at the behest large. I mean, we did spirits, which is a little different than wine, and a little different than beer. So what I'm saying is, is pertains mostly to spirits, but you can't really sell direct to consumers. So I don't really... I don't really, it's harder to get accurate data, especially then, of who my consumer was, what their purchase occasion was. I mean, all kinds of things you have to really, I would say, in many ways, do by hand. And so um, one of the things that attracts us to Spirits was there, there are companies that sold, you know, an average exit could be easily like eight to 12 times sales because it's that hard to do. So to the victor goes yeah. the spoils. And, you know, there's, of course, there's companies that sold for a couple times sales, but there was... Um, you know, Grey Goose, I think, I think Bacardi bought Grey Goose. I haven't said this stat out loud in a while, but I think something like 14 times sales because it was that accretive because it was growing so fast and they needed a vodka. Yeah. Um, I think multiples have come down and things have, have changed a little bit. That's what it was like then. So we saw that opportunity. Um, of course, we should have known there's a catch that the reason something could go for 10 times sales is because it's hard, it hard to do in your <laughs> Still nothing, still in many ways, still nothing harder. I've tried to do with lower, lower odds. If you start from a, um, you know, kind of a standing start, I think if you have unfair advantages, which is what we're always looking yeah. for or relationships, thankfully I, I do now. So I'm put a gun to my head to start a spirits brand, which might be about what it yeah. takes. Um, but, um, but I think, I think the, I think the point where we had something it's, it was, you know, we never had the, the total number of distribution points of like, an absolute or a gray goose, of course, but we had 
um, we were in the very high end places. We were in kind of like the trendier. We were very on premise, which means we were in bars, clubs, restaurants in like major mm -hmm. metros, New York, Miami, LA, you get it. Um, so we had it at those places. And I think, I think the simple, simplest metrics are stuff like reorder rates and same store sales, because if people are actually reordering Vive or calling for it, um, that starts to tell you you have something. So that's kind of the anecdotal stuff. And then, you know, there was a whole bunch of metrics in terms of like cases sold and revenue and reorder rates that kind of let you know that, hey, you might, you might be in the ballpark of um, something that someone wants to acquire. The funny thing is, I would say, you know, we all read about these companies that like everyone's following ourselves to buy and this and that. But the reality is even most things that get sold, and we talk about this in our book, is like most things are a nice to have, not a need to have. And Vive, in all candidness, was very much that. Like, people were interested, but no one was willing to, like, you know, give up their firstborn for it. So now it's a dance of, like, making sure you we, – we our last chapter of our book, Shortcut Your Startups, talks about how assuming you think you might want to sell it, if there's even a chance you might want to sell your company, you need to build it with that in mind so that you have the option but not the obligation. And I think what a lot of people do is go, I don't think I want to sell it, and even if it's – less than 50-50, then one day you decide you want to, doesn't mean all is lost, but it means you have some work to do because there is a whole, you know, art to the, what I'll call kind of like, um, you know, we did some things to get noticed. We left the breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. One time we bought a billboard right by our biggest distributor so that people saw it, you know, stuff like that to kind of give the, um, the appearance that we were um, doing well, even though we were, but if a tree falls in the woods. So it's a lot of, it is a lot of those breadcrumbs and it's a lot of, um, you know, I joined some industry groups and went to a couple conferences with people that I'd never met to try to build that relationship just so it wasn't like a thirsty, cold email saying, hey, want to buy me? Slide a number across the table, right? And there's, there's a whole um, art to that, which I don't think I've mastered, but I've mastered it enough that, that I've been able to sell some stuff. But I think that's a huge, you know, some people I talk to get really, no one's called me to buy my company. I'm like, and no one probably ever will, but that doesn't mean it's not a good company. Yeah. It doesn't mean someone won't buy it for a number that makes you very, very happy. You just have to put it on their radar and make them, um, you know, at, at Goldman, we used to always say something to the effect of momentum or the appearance of momentum. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just have to kind of create your own luck and create your own momentum so that people all of a sudden go, wait, I'm hearing about Vive everywhere. Maybe yeah. I should should call them and find out more. You know, that was that was kind of the the goal in is that, that something that you look for now? Like when you put money into companies, do you look for owners that are building to sell that have that mindset from the outset? Or is that something you train over because they're just walking through like that? Well, I think what we do, you know, in venture, the goal in general is not to, um, with some exceptions, like you're, you know, my, I have a fund yeah. with a finite life expectancy. So it's not great if someone holds it for 20 years, something they build. Um, even if it's, you know, even if it's a great company. So yeah, we, you know, we have to look for liquidity, but I think the flip side is what, what we do look for is we want someone who has a big vision, someone who, as I said, we want to be at the, the, the forefront of consumer behavior. So those companies can be big. So I want someone with a big vision. Um, and don't get me wrong. I've, I've sold companies in the tens of millions and the hundreds of millions that I've started, but I'm not, you know, for it to be a venture backed company, like I can't, I like, if it took one check and sold for 25 million, a lot of people would probably be happy. That's not how venture capital works. So it's it's power laws. We have to, um, you know, back people who who tell us they want to build something big, but we have to believe it because yeah. occasionally you get the person who says they want to build something big, they've got a little lightning in a bottle, and the first 
offer that comes across the table than they want to take. And you're like, wait, that's a not, lot. That's not, know, that's not as much. It's a lot for somebody who's never yeah, gotten a check before, but <laughs> for, yeah. yeah, I got you. And that is attention. And look, we always want what's best for the founders, yeah. but that's why we just try to be upfront about like, what are, what are both our, our, our yeah. objectives? Like no one's trying to hang on too long. No one's trying to get you to do something that we can't do. But if you want to build something there, you know, there are those things that who knows how big they can get, like an open AI. Yeah. What was the what was the, the, the process between after you sold Vive, you're like, listen, I really want to build VC. I really want to go in. I want to I want to have a vehicle for venture. I, uh, you know, maybe we can bring in some LP money. We can we can find some great deals, find some great founders. Uh, like your 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 mindset or your thesis for what M13 was going to be. What was that? Yeah, I think we we kind of like I, I can't say my, you know, my brother had more of a vision for M13, but I think we kind of in some ways fell into it by based on our activity set in the macro. As I said, in the macro, living in a place like L.A. at the time and you know, now we have offices in New York and, and some other places. But um, at the time, L.A. is just having this moment of like how things are built, like harnessing media and social media and influencer stuff. We were pretty well versed in that. And then you're kind of in L.A. Um, and then, you know, tech enabling different brands to grow it at, um, you know, to scale much faster and get up the J curve than they ever previously were able to. So um, that was all happening. And the last couple of years of Vive, we, I think, kind of knew it wasn't our, uh, our there, there big future. So we had, we had made some other angel investments. We had joined some other boards. And so, um, you know, all in consumer tech, and some of those have gone really well. Another a couple of other companies got acquired, one went public, um, and then we had some investments personally that that did really well. We had a, um, you know, we put in some of the first million on Ring, the video doorbell. That's I think Shark Tank's biggest product ever. Um, things like Lyft and Pinterest, we were early in, and then you know there was a couple other crazy ones. We had something we made a thousand times our money on. It's a small personal check, yeah. but still a thousand is a thousand. So, um, you know, we had, we had made money for some other people. We had done some deals. So all of a sudden our activity set kind of led itself to what we were doing with Vive, where all of a sudden, I'm sure, you know, as you make people a little bit of money, they're like, well, I'd give you more. <laughs> Maybe you should kind of put it into kind of more of a formalized yeah. fund. So uh, wasn't wasn't going to say no. That's to That's great. So, I, you know, I appreciate how you did this because the 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 move from operator to capital allocator is a difficult one if you've never done it before but you were kind of doing it it's like a side hustle before you did it as a full-time thing you're doing it casually you're doing it yourself yeah. so yeah. but then so yeah. doing like i mean we started with very small personal yeah. checks where you're in charge of your own capital yeah. then we did some spvs yeah. meaning we grab other people's money and would go to lyft or whoever it is and say hey can we get a five million dollar allocation i'm going to bring in these people, they're, they're different and interesting in value add, and, and we did some of that. Um, and then, you know, now crossing like a billion dollars in AUM, it is a very different sport than what we were doing before, um, but it's a, it's a fun you know, muscle to learn. As you all know, Success Story is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Network has incredible podcasts like the Gold Digger Podcast. If you are looking for a new podcast, you have to check it out. It's hosted by Jenna Kutcher. The Gold Digger Podcast helps you discover your dream career with productivity tips, social strategies, business hacks, inspirational stories, and so much more. I tune into them every single week. They just did an episode on a four-day work week experiment that they actually conducted in their own office. A few other recent episodes I enjoyed 
were on how to hire A players in your organization in 14 days or less. Jenna Kutcher is an OG in the podcasting game. You got to go check out the Gold Digger podcast at the HubSpot Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcast. How do you differentiate yourself as a venture capital firm outside of just being somebody that makes money, which is a great thing to be, but how do you differentiate yourself in terms of the types of founders you work with, the types of companies you work with? What's your vision for that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because that is that is our main point of difference is that we've we really, as I said, we're kind of set up as a consumer technology holding company. So we've done some really unique things. We raised um, some outside money to kind of build out our infrastructure uh, years ago when we were first starting. And what that really means is infrastructure kind of means data and systems. And so we have something that we've spent a lot of time and money on that's kind of like we call it like our collective brain. Like how can we how can we harness the um, institutional knowledge of not just myself or my brother or my other great partners, but everyone at M13. And then how can we harness that collective brain of like everyone who's an LP and we have some incredible LPs and, and the list goes on. And that's, you know, that's what we're kind of in the process of doing. There's obviously an AI component to that. Um, so that's a big differentiator. And then the other big one is that we said, you know, we want to move away from the world doesn't need a venture, another venture capital firm, even with great returns. It's, it's, nicer but we wanted to try to create something different try to create something that um made people hopefully go wow 10 years from now the, the evolution of venture how people kind of add value beyond just dollars is is different and so what we've really done is we have a kind of this middle layer that we call um propulsion and we're trying to propel obviously the things that we invest in and build um faster and get them up the j curve faster using our unfair advantages so we try to use that knowledge, and then we actually have, um, you know, a team of dozens of people with different subspecialties who work cross-functionally on things that we both start and things we mm -hmm. invest in to help grow them. So, um, you know, we've we've got uh, a head of data strategy from a Decacorn fintech company. We've got, um, you know, a head of uh, Brandon Combs who worked for Richard Branson for a dozen years. Um, directly at Virgin, we've got you know a, a culture and um, people person. So these are all people. They can help you with hiring. They can help you with your press release. They can help you refresh. Mm -hmm. We have a head of product, so we can you know look at a an, an app and go. We should we should redo the product. So we have all these people that can do that. And I think we are really unique in that we've been able to get incredible talent that we wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. Because most of these people, if I said, hey, do you want to come work for a a pre-revenue launch company, they're like, no, 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 I'm not doing that at this point in my career. And if I said, do you want to go work at a venture capital firm, they probably would have said no. But I, when we say, hey, you can work for the holding company, everyone that works with us has equity in the holding company, which means they're incentivized um, across the board. And it's uh, hopefully going to bear out really great results. So it's, it kind of creates a unique model. Um, and then the best, you know, to bring my long answer full circle, the best thing you can have is founders going, oh, wow, M13 went above and beyond compared to anyone else. Um, mm -hmm. They actually did what they said they were going to do because that founder reference helps us win other deals with other founders. That helps us actually raise money when we say, hey, I know this all sounds really good in a DocSend link, but yeah. why don't you actually talk to a founder or two and see if they've actually you know, benefited yeah, from yeah. it and say they wouldn't have been here otherwise. Like that's, that's the proof in the pudding. And I think that that, so the, like the, the secret sauce is this, it's it's a true value add, not the not the BS value add that every VC will say they they give to a, a portco, but uh, the portfolio company. But it's a true value add, and I think that part of that is is tied to your ability to attract some of these high profile investors. I mean, like you have Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, Arianna Huffington, 
PNG Ventures. So, you know, if you were going to give, I mean, not every entrepreneur, especially first time, especially first time, will be able to attract people like this. But if somebody raises money from people of this caliber, because they not only have notoriety, some of them have operational experience uh, and obviously just massive amounts of wealth. What would be the, the thing that allows you to bring these people in of this caliber? You know, I think, well, what is the thing? I think it's just, you know, maybe it's it you getting up in front of them. I don't know what it is, yeah. but there's something I, there. I think, no, it's good. I wanted to take a second to think about it because I didn't want to just shoot the, you know, as I like to say, your first thought is often not your best thought. I think it's that, um, I think it is just relationship building over time, which really comes down to trust. You know, I think a lot of these people, I didn't just cold call them. I made them money in something else or we've worked them in, with them in some other capacity. And I do think um, it's not easy to get to these people, but if you take a long view of it, the number of people that I met at Goldman Sachs that I stay in touch with, the number of, you know, we, we used to serve our alcohol brand, Vive, on all Virgin America flights because it was carbon neutral, because it was organic, because it was California based, all these things that perfectly lined up with Virgin. So, you know, I met Richard, Carter and I met Richard back then. So, um, you know, all these things just take time, but I think, um, yeah, I think there's some things that no matter where you believe AI is going, I like to think at least my current thinking is that it doesn't replace just, you know, having a good rapport with someone and be able to build a relationship. And so um, that is something that we, that I think we really pride ourselves on is, is that and just, you know, overall reputation. Um, one more, one more point on on uh, on M13, and I want to flip to to the to the founder side, the founder perspective, and and pull out some more insights there, which is really what you're speaking about in in the book. But it's it's everything in the book. But I mean, I also want to not just give the investor a little bit to take away from this. I want to give the the founder a little bit of a chance as well. So <laughs> the last thing, you know, you have all these data points, and you're leveraging AI. At, at this point, obviously, there's a lot of data that goes into your decision making as to how you invest. But there's also intuition. How do you manage those two things? Yeah, that is uh, it's a little bit of that Malcolm Gladwell um, blink. Um, and I think, um, yeah, we, I would say I would like to feel like at this point in my career, um, I have a pretty good picker. I have pretty good pattern recognition. I have pretty good intuition. But I think... You know, they just work in concert, right? I, I don't know. I am certainly not someone that only looks at the data, but I'm not someone that only goes with my gut feel. Because even if you, even if I think my gut is um, one of my best traits, but even if you're right eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times on the, on the person, you know, that's one out of 10 or two out of 10 that you're still way off or missing. So I think you have to um, balance those two. But we have, you know, there's, there's, there's tools that we use, for example, that bridge that gap. So um, we love this tool called Acumax that's um, kind of a hiring tool. Uh, very different than a Myers-Briggs or things that people might have taken. It kind of says this is your personality and it's a little more um, little more of a this is how you are set in stone. The Acumax is a little more of a diagnostic that kind of just shows you how you show up in, at work. No commentary on how you are as a human being or as a mom or as a dad. But it's a really accurate tool. And so... It'll, you'd be shocked. It's a five minute, uh, and I shouldn't even say test. It's, a, it's like a five minute exercise. You think this couldn't possibly tell anything. And then all of a sudden, I'll be interviewing someone for a VP of finance role, and it will say, hey, this person might have some issues with being detail oriented. We actually had this happen years ago. And there was like an intuition that 
that this was going to be the case, that the, the VP of finance probably had some issues with detail-oriented stuff. The, the person was really um, social, right? You don't necessarily associate some of your people with you know, being super extroverted. And it was all things that we knew in our gut, but this kind of helped confirm it. And therefore, yeah. we actually gave this person like a case study to do some things. And all of a sudden, it turned out we were kind of in love with their pedigree and the referral, but I didn't actually delve deep into some of the areas that as soon as we got this uh, idea of where to shine the light, it made us go, oh, okay, this, this is not the right hire. So um, there's ways to bridge it. And I would say if things are a jump ball, I trust my gut, but I think it's uh, you know, a yin and a yang and an, an art and a science. I love that. Um, okay, some advice for founders. Um, you're going to have a completely biased view, but that's why I'm asking it. I'm going to ask this question because you have a biased view. So founders... Should they raise money? Should they not raise money? What founders should bootstrap? What founders shouldn't bootstrap? Well, um, I'm definitely biased, but you know, I, I don't <laughs> actually believe, I mean, all of us are biased, so you should, I always say you should start by not pretending like you're not biased. You should start by acknowledging your biases and just going, great, Agreed. this is what we're, we're working from, right? 90% of us hire people that look and sound like us because we're yeah, biased. That's yeah. We know, we know. Um, I should or shouldn't take money. Um, it's, it's less about like the result and more about the why, you know, um, we, we read a whole book in our chat, uh, a whole chapter in our book called, um, know if you're a sailboat or speedboat. And the, the problem with the way society goes now is all we write about are the speedboats, um, you know, Lyft, Airbnb, whatever the case may be. These are all the speedboats. We all hear the stories of the speedboats when really nine, you know, if you're not sure what you are, trust me, you're a sailboat. 99% of companies are sailboats. What's a sailboat? It gets a little wind, AKA sails, momentum, gets a little gust, travels, wind dies down, you kind of plateau, catch another gust, but you hope that over time that line, you know, is kind of up and to the right, even though it's not, maybe it's not exponential, maybe it's not linear, but it's, it's up and to the right. And I think um, in terms of taking money, it just depends what you need it for. We're really big believers in don't take money just to take it. Don't take money based on Take money based on like milestones, not time. It doesn't matter how, if you need more money in three months or six months or two years. I mean, three months might be hard, but if you blew through all your targets, you're going to get money in three months. So it's more what you've done with it and what you've achieved with it. Um, you know, I do think the, the industry has shifted even just in the last year to a lot more um, focus on profitability, maybe not outright profitability, but like unit economic profitability or something where someone said, hey, if you had to cut burn, um, or turn a profit, could you do it? Like that sort of thing, which I think is, which I think is great. And so I usually tell people, listen, the less you can, the less you can take until you need to take it, great. Um, so you can kind of show some product market fit. I think it is a little bit like the old, as I'm sure other people on your podcast have said, I would try not to take the house's money, AKA mine, until you need it. But once you start taking it, like you can't stop, you know, you can't all yeah. of a sudden, be a venture type company and then go, oh no, we're a cash flow private equity type company because you know, I watch all the companies get caught in the messy middle. Oh, now we're profitable, but you're not high enough growth to be a growth company. You're not profitable enough to be a private equity or a, yeah. a cash flow company. And what are you? You're either stuck or maybe on your way to going out of business. So that's, that's the thing. I think you just have to decide what you want to be and um, make sure you don't lose sight of that. Um, what just uh, now I just wanted to double check because I was going to ask you a question about founder burnout, which I think is a great conversation. But I was very curious as to if the founders you're working with struggle from that. I'm sure some do, but I also think you do some later stage stuff as well, where maybe they've already 
gotten over that, but that doesn't really matter. I still, I'm sure you still have a lot of opinions and, and advice on it. So founders you work with, some of them struggle with burnout. That's the number one reason why I tell people not to build something. I don't think entrepreneurship is for everyone. Um, it's going to be something you're going to deal with at some point. So how do you deal with it? How do you stay motivated for 10 years? God forbid. I know that's like, I don't want to like stress you out. Like, I know you want to get out in five, but I mean, say, say you got to stick around for 10 years. How do you deal with that, that period of time falls to the wall for 10 years? I think, you know, and that, I mean, I don't know. I can answer because I don't know that I've done it. I think I've, I mean, for seven and a half years we did Vive and that's kind of been my longest gig. Yeah, I and I saw how hard that is. And you know, we're all different, but doesn't matter if my, my, as you call it, balls of the wall, same as someone else's. All I, all it matters is I thought it was a balls of the wall and I gave it everything. I felt the burnout. And so what I love about what I do now is there's a lot of ability to kind of like juggle different things, have different projects. But I think, I think if I, if I had to do it again and you really know that it's a, it, it, I would say I would try to pace myself a little bit, but I would also just be realistic that, um, it's just who you surround yourself with and who you round yourself out with because the number of founders that have the exact same role they had 10 years after they started, it's very small, right? And you know, there's, there's different professors who write things about why that is. I think most of it's just, just, just the burnout factor. But of course, there's a big element of like the skill set changes and what the job needs. But if you love what you're doing, great, still be with the company. You, you might not be the exact day-to-day -day person or at least you brought in a great COO or president to make your life easier. So it's more about, I consider, um, you know, the days of the Travis from Uber, who just just was kind of a, a bit of a czar and ran through walls and whatever. I don't, I don't think that's how most of people do it now. That's mm -hmm. a best practice, especially for longevity. I think the best practice is to um, think of it more like a presidential cabinet. No one can know everything know what you're good at, know what your superpower is, know where most importantly your blind spots are, and then hire for those and put the kind of cabinet together. And the better you do that, the more I think you as the founder or creator will be able to have the longevity. And, and coming from both sides, advice for the founder, but also from your experience, how do you deal with um, like major, major disagreements with your portfolio companies between the founders and yourself? I'm sure there's personalities at the table. Um, I've never actually heard that discussed on a podcast. So I, I thought I'd just ask because I'm sure there's boardroom meetings that uh, get heated once in a while. Um, we, on, we only see it when it gets to Netflix for the rest of us. So how do you how do you deal with this? How do they deal with it? I don't, you know, it's not that we, we actually just had a situation with um, one of my other partners where we, we struggled the, this is a very much, we, we, I think we pride ourselves on having like very like streamlined aligned open communication with the founders we back, but of course nothing's perfect. We had a company that was raised a ton of money at a great valuation when things were different. Now they've hit some struggles. Some people changed on our side who was kind of point person, some people changed on their side, and we were having a bit of struggle to um, to kind of re-engage the company and, and, and add value. And we had one person that was able to add the value, and we, we said though, like we just have to make sure we're having the right conversations. Because I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be like, you know, the VC that everyone hates and doesn't want to work with, but I also don't want to be the most agreeable one because it probably means you're not pushing hard enough adding value. So to me, it probably starts with just really good alignment, right? I mean, listen, let's not forget it's it's the founder's company, not ours, no matter how much we own. Then getting aligned both with, you know, their vision and then hopefully a shared vision. And then realizing that like, you know, this is like YPO or some kind of mentoring thing where 
not that I'm saying we're mentoring them all the time, but like they're mentoring us, we're mentoring them. But, you know, there, there's, I think we've lost the art of like the uh, ability to agreeably disagree. So mm-hmm. I love to um, debate as long as it's in a healthy way. And I think that's, that's the key because where it goes off the rails is everyone's willing to debate when you're doing well and you're just having kind of a debate all of a sudden things aren't going well or this happens and now the debate turns personal or you took it as personal. That's, that's where it gets tricky, but it, it really is about that alignment and that, I think, you know, positive discourse, if you will. I love that. What is one of the, the main lessons that, that impacted you the most in the, in the book you wrote, um, in shortcut to start and shortcut your startup, excuse me, that we didn't go into that you just would think this is going to resonate with entrepreneurs. This is what they have to know. I think, you know, I think the main, um, I think the main lesson to me is realizing that, um, you know, most of like, I don't think being an entrepreneur is for everyone. I think, I think, I think a lot of it is learned, but I think obviously we can probably agree that there's a certain set of skills that predispose someone to be a better entrepreneur. Um, I think for most people, I've had friends go to start stuff where I'm like, in my head, this has you know, this has way lower odds than anything else based on them. And and I'm trying to think if there's time I haven't been right about that really strong feeling, but you know what? I think I think being an entrepreneur is a little bit like Shakespeare, right? It's it's better to have loved and to lost than never have loved at all. Like, good for you for trying. Most of the ones I've talked to ten, five, 10 years later are glad they tried. And it's like a funny dinner conversation versus like lamenting that they never gave it the try. And I think you, you know, you can't forget that, um, there's a big element of luck and skill and, and you make your own luck. But I really think there was a, a real well-known venture capitalist who did this big study after his career, very successful. And it basically, he tried to look back and go, Oh, if I had done this, if I had done that, whatever. And the only thing that he felt was statistically significant, which would have changed his results is just timing. And so I think you can never forget that it's the right idea in the right context at the right time. And I have personally started and been a part of many things that were two out of the three, really hard to find three out of the three. And occasionally two out of the three works to a degree, but very rarely um, does it work when it's not three out of the three. And those are a lot of things to have, you know, line up. I love that. Um, if so I, people... I think I think to just make sure I made the point, I think yeah. it's that if you had one, you started and failed, realize that there's some things in your control and there's some things out of your control. So, so don't, don't give up and, there's a reason second time entrepreneurs are great to back because it either means they hit it and they know what they're doing or they've learned from those mistakes and boom, they're ready to. And, ready to and it's a very expensive lesson, <laughs> which is not easily forgotten. Um, right. If people want to, if people want to get the book, um, obviously it's going to be Amazon everywhere. You can usually get a book. Where, where should they go, though? Any specific domains as well as your social. So where should they go to follow you, connect with you? Yeah, sure. So the book, uh, our book again is called Shortcut Your Startup. Um, we wrote it in 2018, but I've been, I've been shocked with how consistent the sales are um, still. And I say that only because I would hope that mainly through our learning and the other people we bring into the book, um, there's some great evergreen wisdom. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's sold on Amazon and, and whatever they say, most places that uh, books are sold, hopefully yeah. for Shortcut Your Startup. Um, for M13 stuff, we'd love to hear from you. Just m13.co because .com is so passe. And, um, <laughs> and then for me, um, you know, kind of all over LinkedIn and then um, um, on Instagram, it's just my just Courtney Reams. So uh, I'm the only Courtney Reams. So if you can't find me on LinkedIn or uh, 
Instagram, then uh, you know we might have to hone your entrepreneurial skills. <laughs> um, okay, two questions to close it up. I ask these questions of everyone. Uh, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? I don't know that I'm doing it, but I would just I would just probably be like just just don't worry so much, like don't stress, like just it's gonna you're exactly where you need to be, and it, it's gonna all be fine and work out. I love that. And then last question: What does success mean to you? It's changed for sure, but I think to me now, success um, probably means freedom. Um, it, it's kind of freedom to do what I want with who I want, when I want, kind of how I want. Like we say no to some great companies. We say no to some great people who come our doors who want to build brands with us. You know, we started a brand a year ago with Tony Robbins as an example, someone I always looked up to, got to become friends with him and now start a brand with him. There's people of that ilk who've come to me and I just, just didn't feel it or whatever else. And so, um, you know, the barbell to freedom is responsibility. Um, with great freedom, you have to kind of make sure you have the responsibility side. But um, yeah, I, I, I love that because it's taken me um, 20 years to kind of build something and be part of something where I have still a lot of responsibility, but I also have a lot of freedom. So I'm really grateful to uh, all my partners in the ecosystem to help enable that. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. 
I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 